I'm really excited to introduce a six-part series that, guided by our distinguished guests, will look at the Inflation Reduction Act, otherwise known as the IRA, from a number of different perspectives, government, both legislative and regulatory, business and economics, utilities, and environmental justice. The IRA promises to be the new deal of the climate crisis. It provides a record $369 billion to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and support the build-out of clean energy and zero emission transportation. It will enable our country to reduce carbon emissions by approximately 40% by 2030. Super aggressive and ambitious, but Doable. Through a mixture of tax credits, tax deductions, loans, and grants, the new law makes clean energy more affordable for every sector of the economy. It provides the U.S. credibility as a global climate leader and will ignite the climate movement from an age of innovation to what we at Antenna call the age of adoption. We typically associate cities with culture, food, and a density of people and buildings. Cities have always been the lifeblood of civilizations, as they are history's greatest laboratory for innovation and progress. The common denominator that binds the Roman innovation of roads and infrastructure, the invention of modern mathematics in Baghdad, the modern banking system in Venice, or the silicone chip in Silicon Valley, is the city. The reason that, that cities have been the hub for innovation is what urban planners call the agglomeration effect. The phenomenon of employees and firms co-locating in the same geographic area, the density of people and companies, create a unique intellectual energy that spurs innovation and progress. Cities today, however, are also microcosms of the biggest challenges facing society, climate change, equity and justice, public health and accessibility to name just a few. Today on Raising Your Antenna, I am privileged to chat with Miguel Gamino, Chief Experience Officer and Founding Partner of Simplicity, a company that has created a platform being used by cities to better teach, communicate, and inspire the lives and civic contributions of urban dwellers around the country, both because of his current role at Simplicity, as well as his prior public service as a Chief Innovation Officer of, respectively, New York City, San Francisco, and El Paso. Miguel is uniquely positioned to authoritatively analyze the challenges facing cities, but also shed light on the solutions that are, if not already here today, will be on their way tomorrow. Back with Miguel in a New York City, San Francisco, and El Paso Minute. You're listening to Raising Your Antenna with host Keith Sackheim. Hey, Miguel. Welcome to Raising Your Antenna. <laughs> Thanks, Keith. Appreciate the opportunity to be here and chat with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I know uh, I'm super excited for this conversation and I know our listeners uh, are going to really enjoy it as well. So happy to start to dig in and, and get to some of the substance, which in today's environment, obviously very newsworthy. And we're going to talk about some really interesting things. So you're currently the founding partner and chief experience officer for Simplicity Tech, a platform that helps municipalities and residents fight misinformation and stay informed on critical updates in their communities. But your resume tells a story of someone who has been leading tech technology and innovation for the world's great cities, including San Francisco and New York City. I think all of us would be fascinated by how did you get there? And then how did those experiences enable you to get here? Again, thanks for having me. And I'm thrilled to talk about all of this stuff because it's critically important to the country and to every local neighborhood. And part of that is realizing how important local government was to kind of everyone's way of life when I experienced it from the inside. Actually, before I joined government, I was a local business person, startup founder, technology entrepreneur. And so I had all of those kind of perceptions of local government from the outside. And in my hometown of El Paso, Texas, I was given the opportunity to 
serve the community from within as the chief information and innovation officer there in the city of El Paso. And that, that's where that journey all started. And full disclosure, I never wanted to be in government. I, it wasn't like a lifelong pursuit for of public service or anything like that. People who have that mission from earlier in their lives, I have a lot of respect for them because they saw the opportunity and the responsibility sooner than I did. But I did get convinced to do that. And what I thought would be a momentary kind of experience in my life turned into almost eight years of public service. As you mentioned, I went on to San Francisco from El Paso, served as the chief information officer there. Ultimately, you know, the door opened a little bit when I got to San Francisco. I saw a different perspective, a true international city, you know, a melting pot uh, in every sense of the word in terms of the community itself, but also the issues that we were dealing with and the role that technology had to play in those issues, frankly. And I learned a lot and then had the opportunity from there was invited to be the chief technology officer for the city of New York, which was kind of the pinnacle, in my view, of, of that part of my life. Took everything I learned in El Paso and San Francisco and just put it on a different scale. You know, the consequences of action or even inaction were just even more severe. The world was watching and we were also serving eight and a half million people who called New York City home. Truthfully, Keith, I stumbled into it, but I fell in love with it, made a, a life out of it, frankly. And that has served me since to be not only a better technology entrepreneur, and technologist generally, but also a better member of the public, right? I have, I learned a lot about empathy and the role that government plays. I learned a lot about the value of public-private partnerships because I sat on both sides of that table, but it was an unplanned, but absolutely impactful journey that, that I went down. Yeah, that's great. And, and I commend you, uh, even if it wasn't necessarily part of a grand master plan for going into public service. And, you know, we all like to complain about government and our public servants at times, but it's easy to sit on the sidelines and complain and uh, much harder to roll up your sleeves and, and get into the arena and actually do and do for others and do for communities. So thank you on behalf of everyone for doing that. And we're going to talk today about sustainable cities. And, and the first thing I really want to do is let's define that. You know, when I think about sustainable cities? Is it about technology? Is it about sustainability as it relates to climate? Is it about equity and justice, accessibility? Is it all the above or some of it? And then is it about retrofitting our existing cities? Or maybe as some would argue that we should be developing utopian cities like Telosa, which the billionaire Mark Lohr is, is talking about, or, or The Line, which the Crown Prince MBS, as he's called in Dubai, is doing in the Emirates. And those utopian cities, right? So it's ground up, infrastructures built green, equitable, sustainable. So you've been driving innovation in some of our country's most dynamic and progressive cities, as we just discussed. So I'm interested in your definition of the term sustainable, as well as how we can get there. Well, so I'm going to take a little liberty on that question, if it's okay, Keith, because oh, absolutely, it's, it, it is about defining or, or talking about the term sustainability. It's also, you know, I've talked for a long time similarly and critically about the term innovation. And the reason I say that is because cities have been trying to serve their people and use technology and become more sustainable and innovative since their invention, you know, however many hundreds of years ago, depending on which timeline you use uh, to identify the very first city. And the point is, you know, people came together and technology was just different in those different eras. And now it's digital. And now it's, you know, we, we have different terminology now, but the mission is not necessarily terribly different. It's just the specifics have changed. So, you know, cities were trying to be sustainable, meaning they were trying to make it an environment where people could live fruitfully, generally speaking, for a long time. In today's era, that is leverage, absolutely leveraging digital technology. You know, in some point in the past, quote unquote, technology was sewer systems and road systems. Now it's just, yeah, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's the Roman empire, right? And the stuff that right. they built, you still see that infrastructure today. 
Right. And so then, well, it, you see that infrastructure, but you also see the, you know, the design platforms and philosophies, right? And imagine if that, that quote unquote technology hadn't been kind of mass produced or replicated at scale. Yep. So my point there is they might not have called it technology, but it was. Sure. And so what we call technology today is really just the digital tools that are the most modern available to us today to continue to progress cities. And after we're long gone and the technology air quotes isn't digital, it's something different. The cities will continue to progress. My my point in saying all that is it's not like this generation has just figured out that we need to make cities progress for people and sustainable, and we won't be the last. Now, to your question, in today's era, sustainability means absolutely the environment, which is how that term is typically you know, used in reference to or the context that it's used in is thinking about how cities can be more friendly to the environment so that the earth sustains. It's not only about the city sustaining, but cities being a contributor to a sustainable planet. I think that's absolutely true. But I also think sustainability has reference to economic sustainability, meaning people in an inclusionary way have access to prosperity and have access to the future so that their economies and their households and society itself is, is sustaining. And so I think that that term, to me at least, applies to both the environment, the economy, society, generally speaking. It's just about making all of those things support themselves over time. Yeah, I love that, Miguel. And I think about that a lot, that we stand on the shoulders of, of yesterday's generations, right? And uh, there's a certain amount of arrogance that we have when we look at the technology we have today and, and pat ourselves on the back for being so smart and progressive and innovative. It's actually interesting when, when you read about technology innovation, we're actually not innovating at the same pace that we did. If you look at 50-year cycles since the Industrial Revolution, we're actually slowing down on the innovation, which is interesting in its own right. But but yeah, having that humility and recognition that we are just continuing the work and standing on the shoulders of giants is so important. Uh, you know, cities currently support half the world's population and account for more than 70% of global greenhouse emissions. And cities, despite the naysayers who were forecasting their demise right at the outset of the pandemic, they're not going anywhere. Culture, commerce, intellectual energy, human interactions, those are at the heart of, of the big city. And that only happens if it's a densely populated area filled with dynamism and diversity, which, which is our cities. So as human beings, we're just hardwired for cities and they're going to continue to grow and thrive. Yet, they present these major challenges. You just talked about the sustainability, public health, equity. You've made a career of leveraging technology and innovation to address these challenges. And I know that it only works if there are these public-private partnerships. So I'd love to define public-private partnership, why they matter, how they can be optimized, particularly in the context of smart, sustainable cities. Yeah. So I'm going to add a little paint to the context that you, you drew. Love it. I used to refer to those two data points that you mentioned, but I'll add two more. Cities also represent 80% of global GDP. Mm. They also yep. represent 90% of intellectual property patented. Yep. So while you're absolutely, and I used to paint that picture that way because you're right, they generate most of the greenhouse gas. They're kind of the centerpiece of a lot of challenges or at least where the challenges become visible, but they're also the source of the solution. They no are question. The I know that like economists constantly talk about, right? So, so industries always form clusters and those clusters have to be people meeting in the same restaurant, seeing each other at bookstores, walking into each other at parks. Parks, that's where the intellectual dynamism and innovative ideas come from. And that's why there's so much IP coming out of cities, right? Like yeah. there's a term economists use for the cluster of companies. I forget what it's called, but yeah, I mean, that that's, that, that's exactly what we're talking about for sure. The other optimistic lens that I put on this is cities is also the place where diversity organically occurs. So to just paint this picture together, you and I, everything you've said, plus the resources are there, GDP, AKA money, IP, AKA creativity, solution 
solutions, you know, new technology, innovation, et cetera. And that is where ideally those things are occurring from the most diverse population kind of organized in the world, right? So that's the way I say, yes, this is the source of the problems, but from an optimistic view, they have the resources and the best chance at building an equitable and inclusive version of the solution. So that that's just that broader picture. So uh, that's why I've been super bullish on cities. I think the pandemic, look, I was one of those people that if you Google it, I'm sure you'll find where I said it publicly that I think it did shift the migration pattern for cities. I think people were still moving to cities, but they were moving to cities for different reasons and different types of cities that offered different elements of quality of life. So I think the nature of urban migration changed, but the kind of volume or the direction necessarily, I don't think did. So I agree with you. Cities are not dead. They never were. They never will be. But I do think that the value proposition they have to offer to people has shifted. And that's what we have been talking about even in my previous role uh, with MasterCard, but certainly at Simplicity. Now that's, that is one of the things we're really pushing on is this platform to amplify those opportunities, help the government engage better with that diverse population, organize around those resources and generate more inclusive and equitable outcomes and progress in those cities. And so that, again, just finishing to paint the context. Now to your question about public-private partnerships, you know, what I learned by having sat on both sides of the table as a startup entrepreneur, kind of um, critical of government, then working in government, working at, you know, one of the most recognized corporations in the world, and now back into startup, all of those things have taught me that number one, every one of those has limited resources. Even the biggest companies like MasterCard, those resources are not unlimited. People might think that the pockets are deep and endless, but they're not um, because there's a lot of priorities competing for those resources. Similarly, the authority is different, right? Governments just have different influence and authority than even those giant corporations. And the startup community has this role to play with agility and creativity and innovation that I think also is really important to that whole kind of mixture of resources, authority, and value proposition. I think the key to public-private partnerships is also recognizing that, that each party at the table understand that they have some things and they need some things. Nobody at the table has it all. It's like kind of step one is recognition and humility in when you come to the table and then a mutual respect for the roles and alignment that can occur if you come to it from that perspective. And that was always the underlying premise of the partnerships that I developed when I was in government, when I was at MasterCard. And now that I'm at Simplicity, that is, you know, the underlying philosophy that I think has driven a lot of success and a lot of speed in creating these partnerships that have delivered some significant results. Yeah, that's great. And, and again, I love the word humility. And and to me, I don't think people always realize that even if they're not formally in a public-private partnership, they're in a public-private partnership, right? So most of the innovations that we have today over the last 20, 30 years, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's iPhones that are built on, you know, spectrums that were invested in and built by government, the internet developed by DARPA. I mean, so much of what we have on the product and solution side, infrastructure has been built by government, not to mention in the city, which the amount of investment that goes in to give people an environment where you can be diverse and, and create clusters and innovate and those types of things. So everything we do, from my perspective, is technically a public-private partnership. But I love what you're talking about in terms of you sitting on both sides of the table. And when those interactions do happen, the dynamic needs to be governed by mutual respect, by humility. And yeah, I think that's where all the magic happens. Uh, I think also one last point real quick there, yeah. Keith, is I think the, the other thing is that you can have from those different different seats at the table and from coming from those different kind of roles and, and places of authority and resource, you can have both common 
common goals and disparate goals mm. that serve the common purpose, right? So you could come together and say, okay, we all want this specific thing to be accomplished. By the way, also as a private entity, I need to make money because I want to employ people. And the government might say, well, we need to generate taxes or we need to ensure equitable distribution of progress, et cetera. Et cetera. And so you can have diverged discrete goals that still serve a common purpose. Yeah. And that's a way of saying, you know, government moving slow, for example, bureaucracy. I used to have an allergy to bureaucracy, right? When I got inside a government, I realized sometimes there's good reason for some things, not everything, to move slow because it is an actual life and death decision, right? People's lives are literally on the line if you get this wrong. It's not just money or jobs at stake. It's it's human safety. And so there's a good reason for some things to be very carefully considered. Now, there are other things where bureaucracy is overreaching, right? But private sector can't just throw a blanket over all of it and say government is incapable of moving or incapable of acting or moving quick enough to partner with us. And then the flip side is a private entity needing or wanting or having specific goals to make money doesn't inherently make it evil, right? Like making money isn't evil because we all need it to make the world continue to go around economically. And so that's an example, a very kind of specific call out to what I meant by that mutual respect and that empathy and understanding that there is complexity to each side. And there are things that can be done better, but there are things that are done for a purpose. So anyway, I just wanted to be a little more specific on that example. No, that's great. If I could tie a bow on that, maybe. So I think what we're saying is goalposts can be the same. The way you move the ball down the field may be different to get to those similar goalposts. So that's kind of one thing I'm hearing from you. I agree just from a worldview, you know, capitalism is the greatest economic system that's ever been created, certainly flawed. Uh, But capitalists do need the yin and the yang with regulators and government. There's no question about it. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt who was a capitalist, nonetheless, was you know probably our first great regulator, right? And, and right. the philosophy in Silicon Valley of build and break things needs to be confronted with those who are regulating and making sure it's all safe. So uh, yeah, great points. Thank you for that. At Antenna, we've been working with climate tech innovators for more than 20 years, and it's been a roller coaster for all and a slog for many. But I think we can all agree that we've hit an inflection point as the world transitions from what we've termed the age of innovation to the age of adoption. Among the innovators who have successfully commercialized their products, there's incredible excitement about the opportunities right now to sell to government, especially in light of the $370 billion that the Inflation Reduction Act infuses into the climate marketplace. Again, as somebody who sat on both sides of the table, what advice do you have for companies that are marketing to government and on the cusp of deploying clean energy projects at scale, but there's longer sales cycles, there's different approaches, there's different interests at times. I think like what I, again, what I learned from, from the inside of government is you have to, you have to serve everyone. So it's not good enough to just have, you know, clean energy in a affluent neighborhood. You have to find a way for that to actually serve everyone in a positive way. That is, you know, first and foremost for the private sector to understand that, again, it's going to go back to the theme that we're unintentionally creating here, which is, you know, it's not just about making money. It's not just about putting this where it's profitable or environmentally impactful. How do we also make sure that these things contribute to the broader mission that every mayor that I know of has, which is to make their city better for everyone in that city, right? And so you can't just put solar panels where people own Teslas. You you have to find a way for the technology to be impactful in all those neighborhoods. And in some cases, it might be more about job creation, frankly, right? And so uh, in some cases, the climate tech opportunity 
might be less about hold your breath here. It might be less about saving the planet. And it might be more about putting food on my table because in some households, whether we want to admit it or not, that is the, still the priority, right? It's, it's hard to get focused on saving the planet when you're trying to feed your family. Now, if again, it goes back to that alignment of disparate kind of needs. If climate tech can also be job creation, if it can show me a path to making a better life and in income and a better life for my family, now I have support. I don't necessarily have to be an environmentalist to be a climate tech supporter. Yeah, couldn't right? agree. And, I think in the last, I think I saw in the last year, there's been more jobs created uh, in renewable energy than has been in, you know, kind of fossil fuel, carbon type energy. So uh, but I think carbon energy. Yeah. And part of that is though, uh, is a communication gap and an understanding gap, right? Whereas these, these, you know, neighborhoods that are economically distressed, it's really hard for them. And I lived, I came from, I came from that. So I'm, I'm not speaking just from another worldview. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of communicating to people across the spectrum that this progress can be beneficial to everyone for different reasons, right? It's also easy for people to just be dismissive and say, well, even clean energy jobs are for you know, only for college graduates or, or people with engineering degrees, that the only people that are going to get economic benefit from climate tech are people who are already technologists or mm, who yeah. can afford a Tesla or, you know, that like there's a mental, there's just a, a mental sure. yeah. position that we have to inform. And those, those industries, like most large scale industries actually serve economic benefit across even the talent spectrum, right? It's not just, you know, electrical engineers or uh, computer science engineers that can be employed by these advanced technologies, industries will also support a whole spectrum of trades and skills. So I think, you know, finding ways to communicate that broader value proposition and broader opportunity narrative to people across the spectrum is super, super important to generating critical mass to move this forward at the pace and scale that is necessary to actually achieve the intended goal of climate action and inclusive economies. Yeah. And, and, and I would sort of stole my thunder on the next kind of conversation point here, but I think there's so much more to say on it. And you, know, you mentioned, I love the line, less about saving the planet, more about putting food on, on my table. And I'll actually take a little liberty with that because it, it segues nicely into the next question I have for you, which is it's less about saving the planet. And certainly if you read the news today, more about putting clean water on my table, right? And uh, Inflation Reduction Act, $370 billion that's being invested in climate. We want to make sure, as you just articulated, that this bounty reaches U.S. cities and communities equitably. And it's historically, we failed miserably at that. And by historically, I even mean in this past month where residents of Jackson, Mississippi can't get clean drinking water, much like Flint, Michigan, only a couple of years ago. And, you know, these stories, as they surface, are as shocking as they are disgusting. And we need to do much better now as we have the money to transform our cities. So uh, as someone, as, as you said, who grew up in, in one of those types of communities, and there's so many other things besides clean drinking water. I mean, you know, waste plants always seem to be cited in those communities and the grid very often is, is not built for those communities in the way they're built for others. I mean, there's so many examples of, of the inequity uh, when it comes to that. But we know the challenges, although you may want to articulate more. I think one of the biggest challenges is just for those who make decisions to actually be able to understand what, what people in communities that they don't live in are going through. But where do you anticipate the most opportunity for innovation to reach those low income and disadvantaged communities that, again, are, are found in the front lines of climate change. And if you believe some of the
of the stuff that you're reading out there, there, there are countries and communities that, you know, aren't as developed or don't have the same advantages that actually are going to bear the brunt of climate change way before others do. So big question, obviously lots to say on it. Uh, and I meandered a bit, but talk to me about how we're going to do it, you know, how we are going to be equitable as we transform our cities specifically around environment and climate. I appreciate your expansion of my phrase there because you're absolutely right. It's putting food on my table, AKA jobs and economy, but also that food that I put on my table being good for my family and something like water that is (laughs) the most fundamental (laughs) uh, air and water, right? I mean, what else? It's Um, crazy. And so in the most advanced country or however you want to phrase it for us to be experiencing those sorts of challenges. Yeah. We could talk about that for hours probably, but I think the fact is that truth and transparency, I believe, you know, they, they say uh, uh, sunlight is the great disinfectant. <laughs> and yep. so I, th- I, I think truth and transparency helps uh, get us at least headed in the right direction. It, it is not in and of itself the solution, but I think it's critical as a platform to develop the solution and have people involved and informed, not as a shameless plug, but that is quite literally what Simplicity's mission is, is to help provide the platform to provide for truth and transparency in the dialogue and in the communication and relationship between the government, the business sector, and and the public that's being served. And I, so I do think that, that that's a really important part. Um, because Can you give me what, a use case just in terms of your platform and how it's being used? Uh, well, our I mean, our platform is being used by 40 some odd cities in the U.S. Yeah. to communicate directly with the public. Is there, um, thing, is there a use case around a specific issue or initiative that comes to mind as, as just kind of reflecting the best of your platform, how it's best utilized? Um, I'd have to go back and find a specific use case that would probably be the most um, dramatic or impactful, but there are are hundreds and hundreds of small ones that add up. I think, uh, you know, when the, when the city can use the platform to communicate openly about even things like, you know, emergency notifications or boil water notices and things like that, you know, uh, imagine not getting that news bulletin. Right. Um, that that would be a, a big problem if some people knew that they needed to boil water and the rest didn't. Yeah. Right. Um, just as a really kind of graphic example and to your point about water. So um, various cities have used it in things like that to make sure that the community understands what it needs to know when it needs to know it. And so generally speaking, that that's what it's doing for communities. Um, but I think, you know, to the bigger picture, it is about informing and engaging. It's getting people involved and feeling like they actually have access to the same opportunities opportunity and information as everybody else and that they have the ability to act and contribute and engage. And so I think when you talk about things like climate action, there's also climate justice, making sure that it reaches all parts of the community. We've focused a lot on the infrastructure on kind of the, the hard skills or the hard infrastructure pieces like roads and water systems and electrical grids. And we need absolutely, there's we need a significantly more investment to secure and improve those things. But again, I think the soft skills kind of get overlooked when we've allowed some of these issues to become polarizing instead of galvanizing, right? And that's, again, the underlying essence of what we've talked about today is what's broken in the information systems out there, aka news and other sources and channels, is we've allowed that to become a divisive argument instead of, again, looking at it like, yes, environmentalists are focused on saving the planet, but this same bit of progress can serve the other side of the spectrum and the goals of that other side of the spectrum. And so we do need significant investment and 
end the you know the the inflation reduction act i hope while many analysts uh, question whether it's actually going to impact inflation i'm not an economist i'm not going to go there but the fact that it's going to move investment into some of these things that are have long been important and critical i think is great but i hope that our governmental leaders on both sides will do whatever they can to make sure that this is less and less divisive and more and more inclusive and and uh, we're making these investments in a way that serves as many people as possible i remain optimistic and i'm doing everything i can for the last decade and a half or two decades to try to contribute to that in my own little way and opportunities like this keith to talk about it and reach an audience that hopefully we trigger some critical thought in someone who also has their own sphere of influence and will think potentially differently or more inclusively about their own worldview on some of these things and engage people that might have a different worldview yeah uh, I love it and and um, when I hear you talk about kind of the polarization uh, and the institutions that we have and platforms that we have that potentially could be unifying but instead are exacerbating that polarization and partisanship and what have you I think about the pandemic right the pandemic was such a great opportunity like never waste a crisis type of thing we could have come as communities as a country as a as a as a world right as as, as a, an international community we could have come together to solve that issue in a way that would have saved a lot of lives right and, and it was certainly a crisis that doesn't know boundaries doesn't know borders impacted everybody equally and yet we failed miserably at doing that and i hope and i hear what you're saying in terms of climate and climate change that here's another challenge that we face an existential challenge we face that transcends boundaries transcends borders transcends nationalities and i hope we do come together soon uh, and address these challenges because uh, we need it. So anyway, Miguel, thank you so much. This, this was just an, an incredibly interesting conversation, but really insightful. Uh, and your perspective uh, is so unique and so valued. So I appreciate you sharing it with us. And we always like to close the podcast asking our guest for a book recommendation. So what do you have for us? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for the conversation. And to, to your last point, I think real quick, I think there were some examples during the crisis of COVID where we did see communities come together. So I refuse to be pessimistic. Fair, fair <laughs> enough. Fair I, enough. I, I am adamant about remaining optimistic. And even when you got to look, you can find um, those those nuggets. And, and I was blessed to be part of some of those things and experiences. So remain hopeful, remain optimistic, but, you know, critical and, and focused as well generally what we need to do to your book. Um, there's one that comes to mind just based really on what we were talking about. There's a book called factfulness by Hans Rowling. I think the rest of the title or the tagline is 10 reasons we're wrong about the world and why things are better than you think. And I think it's just a matter of perspective and things we think are fact are a matter of perspective than we recognize. And so I think that, that really left a mark on me, but I also like other books um, that kind of speak to leadership and, and community leader uh, leaders eat last by Simon Sinek. Act, tribes by Seth Godin. And then I love biographies, generally speaking. So I've, you know, Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, of course, Henry Kissinger, even Alexander the Great, but I mix in a little Jay-Z and the Beastie Boys too, for good measure. That's great. And um, interested in that hands rolling book. I know Steven Pinker's also written at length about how things are much better than people give them credit for. So I will check that out. Anyway, Miguel, thanks so much again. This was great. And I look forward to speaking soon. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me and enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to doing it again. Hello, this is Keith Zakheim and thanks for listening to this episode of Raising Your Antenna. Raising Your Antenna is a podcast that spotlights the entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, regulators, and legislators who are leading our country's efforts to realize a sustainable planet and an environmentally just future. 
as we transition from the age of climate innovation to the age of climate tech adoption. I interview the people who are innovating, ideating, investing, legislating, and newsmaking the climate tech revolution. I always learn something from these conversations, and I hope you do as well. Raising Your Antenna is sponsored by Antenna Group, the nation's leading climate technology-focused agency. Since 2005, Antenna has been telling the sustainable stories that shaped and elevated the national conversation about climate. Now 200 PR and marketing professionals strong with offices around the world. Antenna is partnering with companies to tell their age of adoption stories, namely how organizations representing all sectors of the economy are adopting sustainable technologies and best practices to transform their businesses.